0: Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 21, we are continuing our walk, maybe sprint, through the book of Acts. We're going to look at two chapters again this week like we did last week, so we're going to be in Acts 21 and 22 this morning. And I know I made a joke last week at the beginning that you need to make sure that your seat backs and tray tables are in their full upright and locked position because we were taking off these next few weeks and Acts and cover a little more than usual. But what I failed to do at the end was to acknowledge that I got you to your gate five minutes ahead of scheduled arrival time. <laughs> and you thought the Southwest was the only one that could do that. Now, no promises that we're doing that again this week, But we did land five minutes early last week, and I was impressed. I don't ever do that. I don't even know. We covered two chapters. But this week at the end, um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So our kids will be coming back in with us to worship with us and take the Lord's Supper. Hey, Emery. Sydney and Emory are staying in with us again, so they're waving at me. And then we also have a baptism to celebrate. Uh, one of our children is being baptized, and so our kids will come back in for the Lord's Supper and baptism at the end, and then we'll sing a couple of songs of worship together. Just so you know, that's where we're headed, and you can already be preparing your heart and mind uh, for that time, and especially for the Lord's Supper. Um, as we get started, I've also got one update to share with you from our missionary partners in Peru. Uh, Miguel and Faith Saxara. Miguel texted me this week, and let me see if I can get this picture pulled up and put it up on the screen for you. If you you want to go ahead and pop that up there. Um, This is his latest update, and I just wanted to read this to you the text he sent. It says, Good morning, Pastor Andy. We've provided 10 Bibles to this new church that actually started getting more kids interested in assisting the church because of the soccer academy. We're thankful to you guys. Now they have Bibles. We will send them more Bibles because we still have some of the money that you sent. We're trying to provide for all the academies. Uh, Thank you and to everyone who blessed these young people. So I just wanted you to see another picture of just how God continues to use the the money from the art show that our kids did back in December, uh, and your giving and generosity, and just—I want you to see that it really is multiplying, and God's using it uh, to to build up churches across Peru, people that we haven't gotten to meet before, and to encourage faith. And Miguel, as God keeps multiplying that ministry, um, and when I get more updates from him, I'll keep sharing with you. But it's just—it's been a great partnership for us already. If you're interested in supporting them and giving to them, it's com. We can get you that information pretty easily and get you uh, in touch with ways to give to them and help them. But I want you to have that update. And then also, as we're getting started, um, we covered two chapters last week. I know that I said, hey, that, we did that pretty quickly. But I also left some stuff on the table. I know that we left some meat on the bone. And any time that we do even a chapter, we're going to do that. We could, we could always cover more. And I want to go back before we jump into 21 and 22, and I want to point one thing out to you because it was just too fun for me. Like I made one little joke while we were reading through this section of chapter 20, and I didn't ever go back to it, and I meant to go back to it, and I just can't leave it alone. So back in chapter 20, Paul's about to leave Ephesus. It's his very last night with the church there. And, and we noticed how long he spent teaching with them. But this is chapter 20, picking up in verse seven. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And my point there was, I really don't teach that long, do I? Okay? I don't ever keep you till midnight. Maybe noon, but not midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And so you know Paul has taught so long that this kid falls asleep, falls out of the window, and dies. I mean like this interrupts your service, right? (laughs) Like surely to goodness this is hey we need to take a time out. It's time to be done. They can't endure anymore. Paul goes down with the power of Jesus that is in him we've seen him do miracles like this throughout the book of Acts resurrects this young man he's back to life and then notice what Paul does when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten he conversed with them a long while until daybreak he starts back up like we thought that teaching till midnight was a long time the kid dies and he's like that's not going to stop me I got six more hours and you know what I really think is going on he's like y'all going to be awake now (laughs) <laughs> you're really going to listen now. You see what happens if you fall asleep. So if any of you fall asleep today, we're just going to keep going. That's how, but it did make me smile. And in all seriousness, one of the things that I hope it emphasizes for us is how significant the teaching of the Word was to the early church. Like This is the foundation and the heart and the life. This is how God built his church. And I think you even get an illustration there this guy dies in the middle of teaching the word and God enables Paul to bring him back to life. Like This is the life of the church. Um, And it was such a priority that it was like, hey, he's okay now, we resurrected him. (laughs) We're going to get back to teaching again. this is my last day with you. There are things to say. There are things that you need to know about who God is and and about his gospel and about Jesus. And I've just, I've got to say it one more time for your good, for the good of the church, for the work of Jesus in his church. And I think even in, in the humor of the story, like it's worth seeing the priority that the Bible, the word takes and the teaching of the word in building the church. And so I wanted to go back to that. Now today, When we're in chapters 21 and 22, I'm going to read for us here in just a minute, and as you're listening for what does this teach us about God, truths about who God is, how he works, and and things that are standing out to you, I want to say one thing. As I'm reading right here, if, if there's something wrong in this section, like I'm reading and there's a verse missing or something, it's because this week Sydney discovered a new hidden talent that she has. Evidently, she is extremely good at drawing on an iPad. And so she was drawing on my notes side of my iPad, and it kept popping up the undo typing, cancel undo thing. And so I don't know if stuff got popped out of place over here in chapters 21 and 22. So if they did, I'll just grab the notes out of the Worship Guide. But here, look—you can you can be impressed with this, all right? Strawberry, a watermelon—I know it's amazing. Like it's got like contour and texture and shading. Yeah, an orange. Grapes, dragon fruit, I mean, i'd never even eaten a dragon fruit at her age, and sunflower, cherries, <laughs> pineapple, yeah, she wants it to be warm. blueberry, mushroom, so those are some good ones. Um, don't want to lose those, so let's pull up a new there we go, new one, so anyway, in all seriousness, i don 't know if. If she popped something off of Acts 21 and 22, if she did, I'll grab the notes here and you'll just know what's going on. But right now I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to ask God to teach us the way that only he can. That that same miraculous work that he did to bring this young man back to life when he fell out of the window and died, that he would be doing that type of miraculous spiritual work in our hearts this morning. Spiritual life. Building his church. The life of his church. The way that only he can do it. And that we want to come right now and say, we are dependent on you. We need you to do it. We trust you to do it. We acknowledge that we can't. The things that really, really matter, the stuff that's going to change people's hearts and change people's lives and have lasting effect for all eternity, we don't have the power to do that. But God does. And he offers to do it by his spirit for his people. That's why Jesus came and died and was raised back to life. That he could give the spirit and make us God's family and God's people. So we're going to trust God to do that and we're going to ask God to do that right now. So if you'll pray with me, we'll pray for that. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time right now. Thank you that even though you are the God who is everywhere all the time, That you have also promised to come and reveal yourself and make yourself known and manifest your presence in a special and unique way when your people are gathered in the name of Jesus studying your word together. And so we come right now and we do that right now because we need to see you. We need to know you. We need to hear from you. And we ask you to speak and teach and reveal yourself right now by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us. Open us up to the truth of your word and do a spiritual work in us so that we see you and we know you and we love you and we trust you the way that we should. Produce that in us by your spirit. Give to us what you want from us. We need you and we trust your grace for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. All right, Acts 21 and 22, starting here in 21, verse 1. Be listening for what this teaches us about God. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance with the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed him, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers... Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death And to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And tomorrow we'll, or next Sunday we'll see Paul's trial in front of them. All right. I know that was a lot. But what stood out to you? What's that teach us about God? Who he is, how he works, his nature, his character? We'll start there and then we'll move into the things that based on who God is, what he's saying to us this morning. Okay. We are to do what God tells us to do even when others say we shouldn't. There's something really interesting in this section, right? Interesting to me anyway, that stands out. Um, and that's, you know, we're, we're referring right here to Paul's meeting with this church before he sails off and says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But then we get down here, that, that's chapter uh, 21, verse 4. And then we get down here to verse 11, and God has sent this prophet who says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so through the Spirit, they're urging Paul not to go, but this prophet says, the Spirit has said, you're going to be bound this way. And actually, you know, if we could flip back, and I, I'm not going to pull it up on here from the week before because it takes me a minute to open that up. But if we flipped back to chapter 20 from last week, so if you've got your device or your Bible there, in chapter 20, back in verse 22, when Paul's talking, he says, and now compelled by the Spirit, so if I had that, I'd circle that right now for you, compelled by the Spirit, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So back in 20, Paul said, the Spirit has led me to go to Jerusalem, And here in 21.11, this prophet says, the Spirit says, here's what's going to happen when you go to Jerusalem. And then in between, we've got the the people from this church coming to Paul and says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And so here's what I think is going on right there. And there is some ambiguity. This is one of those areas of the Bible where we can study together and we dig in and maybe like, Is this the best way to interpret this or not? And you need to spend time praying and asking God, like specifically, God, when you put this type of tension here so close together three times, what are you trying to teach us? How does this apply to my life? What do you want to say to me right now? But here's what I think is part of what's going on right here. And I wrote it down this way, that for believers, it's possible to disagree About some details. In a way that is still that's the word that (laughs) let's just try that again. That is still in I'll put it in quote the spirit. Because clearly Paul is saying, the Spirit's telling me to go to Jerusalem. And this prophet's saying, the Spirit's prophesying about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. But then these these believers come and they don't want that for Paul. They don't want him to suffer that way. They don't want him to be arrested that way. And the way that they plead with him is in the Spirit. Now I think it's important to notice that they don't say, hey, the Spirit told us that you shouldn't go. That's not what they say there. But the way that they respond to him, the way that they interact with him is in the Spirit that the Spirit is guiding their heart for him, their emotions, their response, the way that they treat him, even as they disagree. He's saying, I know I'm supposed to go. And they're saying, we don't want you to go. And he's listening to the Spirit, and they're being led by the Spirit. And the reason I think this is so significant is because, listen, there are all sorts of secondary things and third-level things in our life decisions like this that we have to make every single day that aren't specifically outlined in the Bible? You know, there's, there's lots of things that God does outline in the Bible very clearly, very directly. And when he says something clearly and directly, we know this is what we're supposed to do. But there's all sorts of everyday stuff that he hasn't told you exactly what to do. And, and all of us in a living relationship with Jesus are seeking Jesus, and we're asking him, speak to us, teach us from your word, lead us by your spirit. And there may be some details where you're saying, hey, this is what I think I'm supposed to do. And I'm like, you know, I think you're supposed to do this. And we may never get to the point where we agree on that detail, but the way that we disagree with each other is what will determine whether we're being led by the Spirit in that moment. That, that they're, they're disagreeing with Paul in a way that they love Paul, right? It's out of love and concern and care for him, and he's not offended by it. What he says is, stop weeping and breaking my heart, like, I love you too, and I want to be with you, and it's, it's already so hard for me to do this. Like His response to them is just as loving as their response to him, even while they disagree on this detail. And I'm just going to tell you, I think so much of the time we lose that in the church today and in our lives today, that we can't disagree with anybody about anything without hating them and painting them as an enemy and we take these secondary things that aren't the primary thing and we elevate them in such a way and we put so much significance on them and we ignore the stuff that really matters. Because here's what really matters right here Paul wants to follow Jesus and make disciples wherever Jesus takes him. The name of Jesus and the glory of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus and the church of Jesus being built. And he's saying, Look, even if that means I go to Jerusalem and die, so be it. That's what matters. And then they love Paul. They love Paul the way that you should love someone who has shared Jesus with you and, and, and been a leader in the church. And they, they want Paul to keep... Their, they're basically saying, hey, don't go get arrested in Jerusalem. We don't want that for you. And we want you to keep building up the church. That's a good thing. Now, the thing they're missing here is Paul getting arrested in Jerusalem doesn't stop God from building the church, right? Right? It ends up being exactly how God builds the church in the rest of the book of Acts. So They don't see that yet. They're, they're thinking, but they're loving him in a way that comes from the Spirit. And so they disagree in a way that is in the Spirit, not, not over the details. Like, Paul's supposed to go to Jerusalem. You know, it's not that they're right he's not supposed to go, but the way that they express their disagreement, the way that they love him, the motivation, the why behind it, the heart behind it, is from the Spirit. And, I know, that, and so I know that leaves tension for us. And some of us, like everything to be, like you want me to stand up here and be like, do this here and do this here and do this here and do this here. No, okay, I've got my list. I can go do that now. <laughs> and so I know that you're like, well, I don't, what's this going to look like here? I don't know. It's why you have to know Jesus. It's why you have to read the Bible on your own. It's why you have to pray and be in constant communication with God and be learning how to be sensitive to the Spirit and led by the Spirit. And it's why you need other people in your life to keep coming coming and checking you and saying, you know, I see this in you. It's why we need to be in community. Because here they come to Paul, and and they're in the Spirit. They are saying, we don't want you to go. But then here comes Agabus and says, no, the Spirit says he's supposed to go. Right? Their heart's good, but they're wrong on some details, but God provides the correction on the details in community, other people speaking into their life. And, and just, so the two last things, and we can move on to the next one that I would say right here is, it's okay for us to disagree about a lot of stuff. It's not the end of the world. That you don't have to avoid every conflict, and you don't have to feel like if there's any sort of disagreement that something's wrong. Like, it's not always the case. Like, how we disagree may be way more important in a lot of instances than what we're disagreeing about. Now, there are some primary things, and I hope you know this, that none of this applies to. When Paul goes into these synagogues and preaches the gospel and declares who Jesus is, and the Jews disagree with him about that, he's not like, oh, bless your hearts, stop weeping and breaking my heart. That's not what he says, right? He's like, your blood be on your own heads. (laughs) From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. If you reject Jesus this way, we have nothing in common. Now, he keeps telling them who Jesus is, but there's no, oh yeah, we can disagree on this and it's okay. If you miss like the primary foundational truths of who Jesus is and what God has revealed in the gospel and what God is saying through the Bible, if we disagree on those things, we got to work through that. We've got to come back to the Bible and say, what's God really said? What's really true right here? What is, like, there's something right and there's something wrong, and we need to know what has God said that's right, okay? But on these secondary things these, these, and third-level things and fourth-level things and all the things that we grab hold of and pay more attention to than these main things, it's okay if we disagree in the right way. It's okay if we love each other in those things, as long as we don't elevate them to something they're not supposed to be. And so this did, it really stood out to me. Just the, the tension that God lets exist was like, hey, I've told Paul by the Spirit to do this. And I sent a prophet who prophesies by the Spirit that he's supposed to do this. And in between, I've got people in the church who love Paul and they don't want him to suffer this way. And in the Spirit, they're like, don't do this. I think the, the biggest problem when we disagree is how much trouble we all have disagreeing in the Spirit. <laughs> how, how little of the time we're really led by the Spirit in that and that we're led by our flesh. It's like as soon as I disagree with you, something flares up in me, and here comes my flesh after you, instead of letting me, the Spirit lead and me speaking through the Spirit. Does that make sense? Or have I just muddied that whole verse there? But yeah, so we're to do what God tells us to even when others say we shouldn't. Paul knew God was telling him to go to Jerusalem. And the prophet comes and confirms. God's telling him to go to Jerusalem. And so Paul's like, okay, I know you all don't want me to go. And listen, it has an emotional pull on me. <laughs> like, you're breaking my heart right now. And he's, he's weeping with him. But he's like, but I still have to go because God told me to. No matter what I feel, no matter what you feel, no matter what you say, I have to go because God said this. Whatever God says, we, we, we just do it. All right, what else? Next thing. Yeah, she said that God wants us to count the cost and then serve him willingly. and you know It's something that really connects really closely to something that Jesus said in the Gospels during his earthly ministry that I feel like a lot of times we don't give enough emphasis to um, and that if we're not careful in our church culture, like our typical way of doing it, we actually really flip this whole thing on its head and get it completely backwards from what Jesus said. And that's when he said... Hey, if you're going to follow me, you need to know that it's going to cost you everything. Not that you've got to pay him and buy his love and grace, or that you've got to earn the fact that you're in his kingdom. But what he's saying, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be most important. I'm going to be more important than everything else in your life. Even than your family, your friends, your money, your resources, your job. And it's all got to be on the table. And I may at any point in time call you to follow me in a way that means you've got to let go of that stuff. And he said, like, when he's talking to him, he says, if you haven't counted that cost and said I'm worth that, then you, you can't follow me. It's when the, the, the guys are walking to him is like, hey, I'll follow you anywhere. And he's like, you know what? I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with giving up the comfort and the security of your home? And the other guy's like, well, I want to follow you, but let me go bury my dad first. He's like, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not worthy to follow me. You've got to walk away from everything. And so, and what I was saying that we get backwards is a lot of times you think about the message we give, it's just, hey, raise your hand, pray this prayer, or walk down this aisle, talk to somebody, and you're good to go forever. That's all there is to it. It's this one moment, this one thing, and you're good That's all you got to do. Just repeat. I'll even say them out loud for you, and you just repeat them in your mind, and you're good to go. And listen, the grace of God is so extravagant, and it is so free and unearned and undeserved and unmerited that, that the true heart of faith that prays that simple prayer of faith, like, I am a sinner, and I can't save myself, and God, I need you to do what only you can do, and I know Jesus came and died on the cross to do this, and I believe it. I believe who he is, Like that is, at that moment, God's bringing a heart to life spiritually, and he is saving you, and he'll keep saving you, so I'm, I'm not saying that God doesn't save people in that moment, but the, the New Testament picture of that is he starts saving them in that moment in a way that the rest of their life is his work of continuing to save them by continuing to change them and change their hearts. And he'll finish it when we join him in heaven. Like it's saved past, being saved present, and we'll keep being saved future. It's this full work. It is not just one moment where we make one decision. It's we're going to be a disciple and be making disciples for the rest of our life and growing in the likeness of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, and I want all of you. I want your whole heart and your whole life. And you just need to know up front, Jesus is not going to bait and switch you, even if we do that to people sometimes. He's not like, hey, just raise your hand and pray this prayer and we're good. And then you get five years in, he's like, oh, by the way, I want everything. He doesn't do that to you. He tells you up front, I want everything. And he says, and I'm worth everything. And so, yeah, there's this aspect here where we see with Paul that he's learned to count the cost, and he says, and Jesus is worth it. Right here, verse 13. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for? Don't don't talk me out of this. Don't stir up my love for you so much that it becomes an obstacle and a barrier to my love for Jesus. Jesus has to come first. He's like, for i I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's like, I understand that if I go to Jerusalem, they're going to throw me in prison. Jesus is worth it. I understand that if I go to Jerusalem, I may die. Jesus is worth it. And listen, he's not stoic about this. He's not unrealistic. It's not like he's just sitting there, oh yeah, I can handle that. He's weeping. It's breaking his heart. Like He knows what's coming. But in spite of all that and all the emotional turmoil, he's like, Jesus, is still worth it. And so, yeah, God wants us to count the cost. But that's not the whole thing. And know that he is worth it. And we could say so much more there about that. Um, and I probably haven't said as much as I wish I had as clearly as I had. But if you'll just reflect on that this week and, and pray through that. And go back and read those sections in the Gospels where Jesus is he's telling people, he's like, hey, when a king goes off to war, he counts the cost before he does it. When somebody starts to build, he counts the cost before he does it. If you're going to follow me, count the cost before you do it. And it's almost like we get, and I'm, I thought we were moving on and we're not. It's like we get so worked up, like, oh, we gotta, we got to convince people to follow Jesus. we gotta, we got we to gotta make it where it's just as easy as possible to get them down here and get them to make a decision. We can count that decision, and we go, look, look what's happening. Look at all these people. And we, we water it down into this thing that's not what Jesus is talking about. And we almost, if we're not careful, we present Jesus like this weak, needy beggar who needs people to come validate him. Like, like Would you just come and show that you really believe? Like, Jesus doesn't need anybody. Like, When he's on earth, he's not begging anybody to follow him. He's like, you need me. <laughs> you, you, I don't need you to accept me. This is Jesus talking. I don't need you to accept me. You need me to accept you. <laughs> and so he's almost the exact opposite. Like He's talking people out of it. You think you want to follow me. <laughs> Here's what that means. Jesus is your king. He's your king, and he rules everything in your life, and it all belongs to him. And what he says goes. Are you willing to trust him that much? Are you willing to surrender to him that way? And look, you're not going to do that perfectly. I'm not saying if you don't do that perfectly, you're not following Jesus. What I'm saying is that's what following Jesus really is, and that's what he's calling us to. And then he says, I know you're not there. If you will trust me and depend on me, I'll help you get there. I'll give you my spirit to be changing your heart so that you actually want to be that way. And that's the biggest thing of all. If it's not trusting him, if you're not depending on him, if his spirit isn't living in you and changing your heart, you won't ever get there. Like all the religion in the world, all the external stuff you can do, all the ways that you can make yourself look good on the outside will never create a heart inside of you that says, yes, Jesus is my king and I belong to him and it's all his. And whatever he wants, whatever he wants, I surrender and I trust him and I lay down at his feet and he can kill me if he wants to. It's his, I'm his. Religion can't get you there. But the Spirit of God living in you and the grace of God melting your heart and opening your eyes and seeing that Jesus really is worth it, that Jesus really is worthy, when you see his grace and his love, it does, it starts to change you in a way where that's who he makes you. He says this is who you got to be. And it's a way higher standard than you ever dreamed. And then he says, I'll help you get there. I know you can't. I know you can't, and I'll help you get there. That's, the, that's what's so crazy about like, the real gospel of grace compared to man-made religion. The real gospel of grace is a higher standard than anything religion ever holds up. Like, it's not be good, it's be perfect. It's not give God some of yourself, it's surrender your entire self to God. It's a way higher standard, but then God gives you help that you don't get in man-made religion. In hey, man made religions, here's the standard. Now, work as hard as you can. Do as much as you can. Be as good as you can to live up to that standard. The gospel is hey, here's a standard that's so high that you'll never get there on your own. But I'll pick you up and carry you there. I'll give you my spirit to get you there. I'll put myself in you and I will give you things that you would never have apart from me. That's how you'll get there. It's a way higher standard, but it's way more help. All right, what else? Couple more. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, let me get down here to twenty two seven that you mentioned. So this is, this is when Paul, Paul sharing his testimony of how Jesus came and claimed him by his grace. When Paul was still Saul persecuting the church. So Paul is arresting Christians, beating Christians, having Christians thrown in prison, casting his vote to have those Christians killed. And Jesus shows up to Saul when he's doing that. And his, his statement to Saul is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That when you're beating Christians, you're beating me, Jesus. You know, when you're arresting Christians, you're arresting me. When you're, when you're persecuting Christians, you're persecuting me. And what Phil said was there that, that Jesus was so identified with his people, so present with his people, that what they were going through in that suffering, he was going through with them. So he said, "You know, God may call us. And I'm going to kind of summarize it all here to really hard things. It may be persecution. It may be suffering. It may be grief. It may be loss. It may be the letting go of things that are really, really valuable to you. It may be the breaking of your heart, the way that Paul says here when he's leaving this church and headed back to Jerusalem. God may cost really hard things. But God is always intimately with us. in those really hard things. But you're you're never alone. And he doesn't call you to go through anything that number one, he won't go through with you, and that number two, he hasn't already gone through before you. Because you think about everything we said just a minute ago. This is, this is what Jesus is worth as your king. And he calls you to lay down everything and surrender everything and give everything to him. That, every, that you live your whole life with these open hands. You're like, okay, whatever you want to give to me, give to me. Whatever you want to take from me, take from me. It's all yours. I'm yours. I belong to you. You think about that that's the message that we're supposed to give to him. Do you realize he already gave that message for you? The glory of heaven. His place at the right hand of the Father just infinite joy and happiness for all eternity. And he said, open hands, I'll lay it down and I'll go to earth. And I don't even understand how he does it. I'll take on human flesh and grow up in a poor home, in a poor town, despised and rejected. And, And I'll spend my whole life teaching about the father being rejected by almost everybody I teach to. And then at the end of it, they'll accuse me of crimes I've never committed and arrest me and beat me and hang me on a cross to die. And I'll pour out my whole life. Like he's already done it. He's not asking you to do something where he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's already done it for you. He's laid it all down. He's opened his hands with everything. And he says, it's worth it. The glory of the Father is worth it. The gospel for you is worth it. His love for you makes it worth it. And so you want to know, hey, could Jesus take somebody like me and really help me do that? Yeah, because he's already done it. He can do it because he's already done it. He's done it for you. And now he promises he'll do it in you. And so don't ever sit here and imagine, well, these hard things Jesus may call me to do, these things I don't think I can do, and you start to picture them like out here in the future, like I just can't do it. And the one thing you forget, when you picture that stuff, you've got to picture Jesus there with you. Make sure you put him in the mental picture of all your fears and your worries and your anxieties and then ask, if he's there, should I be worried about this? If he's there, should I be afraid of this? If he's there, should I think that this is impossible? If you know he's already there and he's going to be with you in it, it changes everything. None of it's impossible. None of it's the thing that you have to fear the most. None of it's the thing that you have to worry about the most. He's already done it. He's proven that he can. He's proven that he will. And he's promised that he will do it in you. And so, yeah, God may call us to really hard things, but God's always intimately with us in those really hard things. One more. Yeah. This is so Jesus appears to Paul in the bright light blinds him which I feel like we could spend forever just on the illustration that Jesus has given us in Paul's life right here but and Paul says since I could not see because of the brightness of the light so in other words here I was in all of my religious self righteousness like, I was a, a few verses ago, he said, I was zealous for the ways of God. Right? He's a Jew who has, at that point, the whole Bible, which is the Old Testament, and he's so faithful and committed to what he thinks is the, old, the, the Bible and what he thinks God said that he's arresting these Christians because he thinks they're a threat to Judaism and a threat to God. So he's so zealous for his religion, he's so self righteous and confident in himself that he's doing the right thing that here he is off to arrest more Christians. Like, he's, he's this strong, intelligent, well-established, well-respected religious person within Judaism. And it's like Jesus looks at him, he's like, I'm I'm about to use him. But I can't use this strong, intelligent, well-established, well-respected religious person. I've got to shatter him first. I've got to make him weak and broken before I can use him. Because that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus, Jesus doesn't need The things that you could give him. He doesn't need your abilities, your strength. You need him. You need his strength. You need his spirit. You need his grace. He's like, and I've got to shatter Saul in such a way that he won't depend on himself anymore and he'll learn to depend on me. And so he comes, and you think the first thing he does is he makes him weak. He makes him blind. He makes him completely dependent on other people. that He can't even walk into the city anymore. Here he was marching in so confident. Hey, I'm doing the right thing, and I'm going to arrest these people. Now he can't even get himself there. I mean, do you see this? And Jesus is like, now, now you're ready for my grace, right? And so he sends someone. You're right, he sends who he needs in that moment. He sends Ananias. And back in the original story, like he speaks to Ananias. He's like, hey, I want you to go to Saul. And if you remember, Ananias is like, you sure about that? I know what Saul's been doing. Do you know what Saul's been doing? And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm picking him. Because nobody would do it this way. There won't be any doubt at all that nobody came up with this, like no human being came up with this plan. It'll be clear, Jesus did this. Jesus, uh, only Jesus is this audacious. <laughs> only Jesus is this bold. Only Jesus is this life changing and heart transforming. Only Jesus could do this. And so he sends Ananias and he sends grace. And now Saul has spent his whole life thinking he could see, Right? thinking that he could see the truth about God and see the best things to do and, and see all the right answers. He thought he was doing it. And Jesus finally shows up and he's like, you're blind. You don't even know you're blind, so let me make you blind. And then finally, when Paul knows he's blind, Jesus says, now, now I'll help you see. Now I'll open your eyes, not just physically, I'll open your eyes spiritually to all the truth of the gospel and the truth of grace and the truth of who Jesus really is. And so, yeah, I mean, a thousand things here. But God gives us the people we need. And there is a real connection so many times in our life between these people that God brings into our life. God gives us the grace that we need. That he works through his people. Like when we say that, that we are the body of Christ, that his spirit lives in us, and, and we're, that he is working through you, his spirit in you to accomplish his purposes, and there's going to be times that he brings you into people's life because he's about to give grace to that person, and he's going to do it through you. That you giving grace to that person is Jesus giving grace to that person. And when you need it, he's going to bring people into your life. And this, again, just let me come back one more time to why you need to be in community. You need to be in small groups. You need to be in Bible study groups where you're sharing your life with people. Because both sides of that, like if God wants to use you to pour his grace into other people, the biggest barrier to that will be your selfishness. That you're so focused on you that you don't have time to love other people and share your life with them and be involved in their life and to deal with their junk. So that's one of, the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why we aren't involved in community in small groups the way that we should is because of our selfishness. On the flip side, if God's going to bring people into your life to be, give his grace to you and you're going to need it and you're going to have to be honest about your brokenness and your neediness and he's going to pour grace to you through them, then the up, so selfishness is one barrier. The other barrier is your pride. Yeah, I'll go help anybody that needs it, but I'm not going to admit that I need any help. And I'm not gonna let you help me. I'll do this for you, but you can't do this for me because I'm too proud to receive your help. I'm too proud to admit that I'm that needy. And so the, the vulnerability and honesty and authenticity of saying, hey, this is who I really am. And I need the grace of God. And I need, I need the people of God to be involved in my life and for God to be pouring that grace into me through them. And then I want to be here for you, and I want to love you that way, and I want Jesus to give to me what's really his and what only he has so I can give it to you, that, that the love that overcomes the selfishness and the humility that overcomes the pride is the only way that we can live in community like that. And that love is the love of Jesus, and that humility is the humility of Jesus, who would step down out of heaven and say, yeah, I'll be humiliated, I'll be shamed, I'll be despised for you. You won't create that on your own. It won't happen naturally, supernaturally. When the Spirit of God lives in you and starts to produce His love in you, you'll love people that way instead of being selfish. When He starts to produce His humility in you, you'll be humble and open and honest about your failures and your needs and your brokenness and you'll be able to receive community. But yeah, He gives us the people we need to give us the grace that we need. And our pride and our selfishness are the barriers and the gospel's the answer. The gospel's the answer again and again and again. One more, maybe. All right, Emory. Ooh. It's always best the way kids say it. God can make magic in other people. Listen, there is no chance that you or me or anybody else in the world is changing Paul's heart. None. I mean, do you know how convinced he was? And listen, you and I are this way too. When you're that convinced about something, when somebody opposes you, it just convinces you more. (laughs) Like it takes the type of supernatural work that the word magic here It's the right word for us if we know what that means in the right way. Like it is magical beyond anything we can naturally do. The way that God by his spirit reaches down into somebody and changes their heart. Like takes a dead heart and makes it alive. Takes a heart of stone and softens it into a heart of flesh. Takes a heart that hates him and is caught up in its own plans and its own ways and turns that heart to him and crucifies its own plans and ways and brings it alive to love him. When he says that magical word, when he speaks that word of grace, that word of love, when he speaks that word and calls your name, and calls you to him, it is a supernatural magical work that only God can do. And the power that his word has to take Paul the persecutor and transform him into Paul the preacher you are know, to take the guy, I know I said this last week, but it just it always stands out to me. To take the guy who says, I will kill you if you talk about Jesus. And he changes him so completely that he says, you'll have to kill me to stop me from talking about Jesus. This is what he offers his church. This is what he offers you for all the battles, all the hard times, all the dark times, all the struggles in your life, that this same Spirit with this same power will live in you and be with you and be producing in your heart this type of change and this type of love and this type of supernatural work and pouring it out through you into other people. As we get ready to head to the Lord's Supper, there's one last thing I wanted to point out right here. Um, if, if you want to go ahead and get the kids and bring them in I'm sure I'll go five or ten more minutes but they can come in and sit with us so just let Teresa know as soon as she's ready to send them on this way oh, you got something you want to say first yeah. say it Yeah, the, that what we see with Paul here when, when God is telling him up front, hey, you're going to be in prison. You're going to suffer. And, and Paul says, I'm willing to die. And eventually he does die. Not, not in the book of Acts. Spoiler alert there for you. Like We're going to make it to the 28th chapter and Paul's still alive. But eventually after that, he does die for the cause of Jesus. He actually gets out of prison, back in prison, and then dies a second time. But that th- there's a picture, an illustration, like a, a whisper, a hint, an echo. Echo is probably the best word. I eventually got there, right? An echo of what Jesus did like, on the grandest scale. That, that what Jesus did ultimately when, when the Father sent him to willingly die, to suffer and die for his people, to, to make the grace of God known, that, that when Jesus shouted that out, now that echoes in the life of his people every single time that we die any kind of death like that. Like any death to self, that shows the love of God, that declares the love of God to people, any way that we suffer and sacrifice as a reflection of what Jesus has done, and ultimately with Paul, that it's a loud echo of he actually dies, like Jesus died, Not, not with the same power that Jesus' death brought to us, but because Jesus was willing to die in that way and did die in that way and now lives in Paul, he produces that same death and then that same resurrection power in Paul. And, and like this is how he builds his church. He calls you to be united to him. And the pattern and the life that he lived, he now lives through you. And over and over and over then, our lives and our deaths, you know, like even our spiritual deaths on a daily level, and the spiritual resurrections on a daily level, and then ultimately our death and our resurrection will all declare the message, repeat the message again, be testimony to, this is who Jesus is and what he's done. When we do this in just a few minutes... That's what we're declaring. The death and the resurrection, because Paul says, until he comes, we'll do this. The broken body, the shed blood. Like one more, like echoing out in the spiritual realms. Once again, this is what Jesus has done. This is who Jesus is. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That's what we declare with our lives. That's what we declare as his people. It's what you were made for. Like, this is what you were made for. This is the greatest thing that you'll ever do with your life. And that ties right into what I was going to say here as we're, as we're wrapping up. You know, this really stood out to me this week. And again, it's one of those places where I don't want to press these details too much. But I know there's something here. And I want to throw it out to you, like, to, to point it out. And then I want you to keep chewing on it and keep studying this week and keep praying. And, and again, like, I know we don't cover, like, every single thing in here any single week. And I think that's a really good thing because if you only eat once a week, how healthy are you going to be? And if you're like, hey, once a week, I'm going, to just, I'm going to stuff myself for an hour on Sunday, and I'm not going to eat anything else again until next Sunday. It's not a good way to do it. It's probably not going to work very long for you. And I don't want us to create an environment like we come in once a week, and we all feast together and stuff ourselves on whatever it is, and you're like, all right, that'll get me through till next week. That's not the point. It's for you to have a living, ongoing, daily, moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus. And and parents, your kids are coming in, so if you want to make sure you see them, wave at them. Um, And maybe you don't, and that's okay. You can sit up here with me if you want to. But um, just find your kids. But the point would be that when we study stuff, and you're like, okay, yeah, I see what he's saying, but I need to spend some more time on that. Great. Or I wish he would have covered this. Great. Cover it this week. Look at it. Ask God to keep teaching you. And you want to have conversations with me and with other people, do that. But... You know, this moment isn't the whole moment. Every moment of your life is the moment to be seeking God in prayer and His Word. And so one of the things that stood out to me is Paul comes back to Jerusalem here. And you've got the church in Jerusalem, and they've got this concern of, hey, we've got all these Jews who have believed, which that's a good thing. These religious Jews who've now believed in Jesus, they're all zealous for the law. So here they are, like, coming to a place of faith in Jesus. But there's also a danger here, like already a warning of, it's not they're zealous for Jesus, they're still zealous for the law. And because of that, they're real worked up about the fact that you've been out on the mission field, doing exactly what Jesus told us all to do, right? making disciples to the ends of the earth, of all nations, but they're afraid that you aren't speaking highly enough about the law, that you're telling people, don't worry about the law, just follow Jesus. And so already, just the idea that, that they're still clinging to their religion in a way that makes it a priority to them over Jesus is a warning. But then what they say is, hey, so here's what we're going to do. Go and, and we've got these four men who've made a vow. Hey, go with them to the temple. Purify yourself. You know, go, go through these religious rituals and pay their expenses. And that'll convince these people that you still really care about their religion. In other words, these people that are clinging to something other than Jesus, try to appease them. Right? Like meet them in the middle, do something that'll satisfy them so that they'll be okay with it. How's that work out for Paul? And the early, this little plan they launch. This is why he gets arrested. Right? He goes to the temple and it's not it's not no, it's not the believers are still struggling with their relationship with the law that arrest him. But it's the the Jews who haven't come to faith in Jesus yet. They see him there. They get really worked up and angry. And they don't care that he's observing one of their rituals. They don't care that he's paying for four of the people to observe their rituals. They hate the fact that Paul talks about Jesus. And they get in such a, a just a fury and an uproar that they incite this whole mob that's beating Paul. And it, I just had this thought, and I, I want it just to sit with you for this week, like for your heart and your relationship with Jesus and the type of real religion that he really wants to produce in you, both for you and then for, for the way that we would interact with the world. And it's this. You can never appease... I'll write it down. You can never appease... or satisfy satisfy Christ-less religion. Even when you try to give them what they say they want, it'll never be enough. They'll always want more. Listen, this... For you like this is how you will drain yourself and be worn down and ground down and burned out and discouraged and frustrated with everything in your religious life is that you keep trying to do more and more and give more and give more and there's this just big gaping hole of Christless religion that's asking you to fill it up and you keep trying to fill it up and it's, it gobbles up whatever you give and then it demands more. But he gave them what they wanted and they weren't satisfied. Because they didn't know Jesus. They didn't realize that Jesus flipped that whole religious game on its head. And he didn't say, hey, come, here's what I demand of you. Do this for me, and then maybe I'll accept you. That's not Jesus' message. Jesus says, you've got a big gaping hole in you. And I'll fill it up for you. I'll give to you. But all this stuff that I'm saying, this is who you've got to be, this is how you've got to live, I'm telling you up front, you don't do it, and I know you can't. I know you can't. That's why I died for you, and that's why I came back to life, and that's why I promised my spirit to you. I'll put it in you. I'll fill the hole up for you. So you trust me. You rely on me. You can never appease and satisfy Christless religion, but Christ has satisfied the Father forever for you. He's appeased the Father so completely that God the Father welcomes you with open arms in the name of Jesus. He looks at you and he sees what Jesus has done for you and he sees the full and perfect work of Jesus. He says, that is enough. That's enough. That's everything. He loves you in Jesus in that way. He fully accepts you in Jesus in that way. When Jesus changes you, Don't expect Christless religion to be happy about it. These Jews are really upset that Paul isn't jumping through their hoops the way they want anymore. Like if he had still been going out and saying this, the Jewish law is the way to be right with God, and, and the Jewish law is the only answer, and I'm going to arrest anybody who doesn't say that. They loved him then, because he was doing what they wanted. But when he says Jesus is the answer, Christless religion hates that answer. It's okay when they aren't happy with it. But let me tell you this, don't even try to appease them they'll never be satisfied. Until their heart is satisfied with Jesus, they'll never be satisfied with anything else. And the same thing's true for you until your heart is satisfied with Jesus. Nothing else will be enough. And you can work for another 10 years if you want to. And you can wear yourself out and you can beat yourself down. Or if there's any way I can spare you of that this morning, I can just say the grace of God is enough for you. He'll really change you. He has given himself for you. He will give himself to you. And the Father will forever be satisfied with you because he's forever satisfied with the work of the Son for you. That's why we take the Lord's Supper, because of that good news, because Jesus did that. He gave it all. He gave all of himself, his body, his blood, his life, to satisfy the Father. Jesus is so much better than Christless religion. The Father is so much more satisfied with the work of Jesus than of anything that we could ever offer him in our own effort and our own strength. So die to yourself. Die to your effort. Die to your strength. Die to self-reliance and depending on yourself and being like Saul where you're like, hey, I've got some answers and I'm going to do this and I'm going to pursue this. So this is so completely that somehow, somehow I'm going to earn God's favor. You can't earn God's favor but he'll give it to you freely in Jesus. You died all that and you come to life in Jesus because of Jesus and let him live through you and let him produce in you life and goodness and holiness that you could never produce on your own anyway. And so let's take the Lord's Supper together right now because we believe that and we want to believe that more. And so right here back to back, We're going to celebrate this picture right now, that Jesus' body was broken and Jesus' blood was shed for us to make us right with God. And then right after this, we're going to celebrate this picture right over here of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And somebody put in their faith in Jesus. And I believe this, that his death is my death and his life is my life. And so see these pictures and see Jesus and see his gospel in these pictures. And then we're going to worship him for that. And so with the bread, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Him giving himself to you, not taking from you, giving you everything you need in himself. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then with his blood, he poured out his life. He poured out everything he had. Willingly surrendering it to the Father, laying it all down, and willingly giving it for you. He said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. The covenant, the promise that God makes to you. Not a promise that you make to him. Or not a vow that you make to him of, I'll be faithful, I'll follow you, I'll do what you say. I'll do enough. It's not your promise to him, it's his promise to you. It's his covenant with you. He's bound himself to you in the blood of Jesus, that he's come to you when you were undeserving, when you were, when you were nothing but an enemy and a rebel against him, and He's come and he said, "I'll make a promise to bind myself to you if you believe in my son." Jesus said, "This cup is my blood of the New covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me and if you want to turn your attention to the baptistry with Teresa over here we get to celebrate today public declaration of this gospel public faith in this gospel and right after this baptism just so you know as Keith and the worship team lead us We'll have people down front to pray with you. If, if you want to come and pray or talk to somebody, we're going to sing a couple songs and worship together with our families, and also the time of prayer will be available. Teresa?
1: is Darius, folks, and he has received Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. And just like Pastor Andy said, this is a picture of what he's trusting in for his salvation, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. He has already declared with his mouth and believes in his heart, but today he's going to do that publicly. And that's what baptism is. It's a celebration of what he's trusting in to take him to heaven. Darius, do you believe that Jesus is God's perfect son? Do you believe that he died on the cross as payment for your sin? Do you believe he rose again on the third day? Have you put your trust in the blood of Jesus to take away your sins? Are you committing your life to follow him? It's because of that, be seated, that I get to baptize you, sweet Darius, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.